So today we're continuing our journey through Exodus on the Exodus Express. Hey. <laughs> and today we're looking at the story of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. And there's actually a fair amount of stuff to get through, so I'm just going to launch straight into it. And as seems to be a common theme in this series on Exodus, there's inevitably far more going on than I can actually deal with in a talk lasting less than half an hour. So instead of trying to discuss absolutely everything that we can take from this passage, I just want to focus on one particular theme that I think brings out some of the major ideas that we should be paying attention to, and I'll leave it to your good selves to investigate things in more depth at your leisure, perhaps at pub church, Friday afternoons at the Waypad. <laughs> so with that in mind, the theme I want to focus on this morning is the idea of transformations. And there are three particular transformations or changes that I'd like to zoom in on as we go. First, there's the transformation of God. Secondly, the transformation of the Egyptians. And finally, the transformation of the Israelites. And as if by sheer coincidence, the passage can be conveniently divided into three parts. A beginning, middle, and end. Handy. So instead of just reading straight through the whole thing, I'm going to read a bit, talk for a bit, read for a bit, talk for a bit, read for a bit, talk for a bit. And hopefully that'll make some of it a wee bit easier to digest as we go along. So here goes. Part one. The prelude. Now, if you remember from last week, the Israelites have just left Egypt at the Passover and God is taking them by a slightly roundabout route through the desert, guiding them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So we pick up the story at the beginning of chapter 14. That's chapter 14 of Exodus, in case you're wondering. So, then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Ziphon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took six hundred chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihahiroth in front of Barzaphon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent." The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. We'll just pause there for the moment. Now, it's 
probably slightly misleading to talk about there being a transformation of God in this passage. So to make it clear, I'm not saying that God changes who he is, because he doesn't. But he does change what he's doing. Take a closer look at that last part. The pillar of cloud moved from being in front of the Israelites to being behind them. What was Israel's guide became Israel's protector. Now, when he does this, God doesn't leave the Israelites entirely without any guidance whatsoever. Immediately before this happens, God is giving instructions to Moses as to how to proceed so that when the pillar changes its role, the people can continue on the right course. If you were here last week, you'll have heard Alexander talk about the importance of God's guidance and the way he leads his people today. So I'm not going to go over that ground again. If you weren't here, check out the podcast. But what this incident does highlight is the importance of listening to God himself and not just following the signs and wonders that he gives us, as amazing as they might be. If the Israelites had just stuck to blindly following the pillar of cloud and fire without paying any attention to God himself, they would have walked right into the Egyptian army. Instead, they had to be careful to listen to God directly so they weren't caught by surprise when he changed what he was doing. But even Moses himself is caught out by God's change in direction. Verse 13, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Verse 14, The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. It sounds very plausible, doesn't it? It certainly seems like the kind of thing God would say. Stand firm, and I'll fight for you. But how does God respond? Verse 15, The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Or as the NIV puts it, Tell the people of Israel to move on. Get a move on. Moses is busy standing there, sounding all religious, telling the people to stand firm and be silent. And God responds by telling him to get a move on and act. How often do we do exactly the same thing as Moses does here? We dare to presume that we know how God works, and so we stand around spouting religious-sounding phrases that all seem perfectly plausible and appropriate. And nine times out of ten, they may well be right. But we fail to draw near to God himself, and so we don't recognize it when he tells us to get a move on and act, because he's going to do something new, something different. Every now and again, God does something so radically different from anything he's done before, that the only possible way to see it coming is if he tells us directly. And that's ultimately meaningless if we're not actually listening to him in the first place. The Israelites' crossing of the Red Sea was one of those moments that was so astounding, so remarkable, miraculous, that nobody on earth could have predicted what was, what was about to happen. But why did God do it? Why did God perform this amazing, unexpected miracle for his people? I wonder if you caught it. Verse 4. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And again in verse 18. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. I will get glory, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. The Egyptians shall know. Not the Israelites, the Egyptians. This amazing, astounding, remarkable miracle that seals Israel's status as a free people once again was never about the Israelites at all. Even here in this event that's celebrated as one of the defining moments in the separation of Israel as a distinct chosen people, it's not really about them. God parts the Red Sea not so that Israel would be saved, though that is one consequence of it, but so that he would be glorified and so that the Egyptians might know that he is the Lord, that he is Yahweh. Which brings us on to part two, the transformation of the Egyptians. So, if you remember, we left off with the two groups being camped side by side and only the pillar of cloud keeping them apart during the night. We pick up again at verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. 
And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a war to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. We sometimes struggle with bits like this, don't we? I mean, yes, it's great for Israel, they're finally free and all that, and we'll come on to that in a moment. But what of these poor Egyptians? How can God say he wants, to know, he wants them to know him as Lord, but then proceed to apparently wipe them off the face of the planet? Unsurprisingly, that's a fairly complex question, and there are a few different elements to consider. But the first point is relatively simple, but it's no less important because of it. And it's simply this, that for a Christian, death is not the end of the story. Those of you who've heard Toby's talk from Easter Sunday will have heard him talk about the importance of the resurrection and how these lives, these bodies, are just the seed of what is to come. That was a truly fantastic talk, and if you haven't heard it yet, I'd really encourage you to go download it or something. So if you want to hear more on a Christian view of death, go listen to that. For now, all I'll say is this. I'm not entirely convinced that it's purely a coincidence that the destruction of the Egyptians comes immediately after their recognition that the Lord is fighting for Israel. The second point here has been made before as well. Pharaoh already had his chance. Way back in chapter 5, when Moses approached him and said, let my people go, what was Pharaoh's response? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? These events at the Red Sea are simply the culmination, the climax of God's answer to that question. Now, there's plenty more I could say here, but for now, the final point I'll make is, well, on this point, is one which we actually find elsewhere in the Bible. In Romans chapter 9, Paul asks this question about whether God is somehow unfair or unjust, and he actually refers back to the Exodus story itself and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart as a possible example. It's a discussion that takes up a good two or three chapters of Romans, I'll spare you the details, but the essence is this from Romans 9.21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? Or later, Romans 11.33, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Essentially, what Paul is saying is this. God is God, and who are we to question him? But we're not always comfortable with that answer, are we? Particularly in university environments such as St. Andrews, we want to know, we want to understand. And the idea that we just have to shrug and say, okay, God, you do what you do, and I'll follow you regardless, that's something that makes us distinctly uneasy. It doesn't sit quite right. But there's another reason it doesn't sit right with us. And this comes out of that section of Romans as well. You see, the problem is, we're asking the wrong question. Whether it relates to the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Amalekites, or the anyone elseites, whenever we're confronted with these difficult sections, we always ask, why does God kill people? But behind that, there's a far more disturbing question that we're not asking. It's a question that can really unsettle us and 
prod at the very core of our souls if we let it. You see, the real question, the one that we should be asking, is not why does God kill the Egyptians? It's why does God save anyone at all? And for that, we need to move on to part three, the transformation of the Israelites. So to recap, Israel have just passed through the Red Sea on dry ground. They've witnessed the destruction of their enemy and seen the power of the Lord displayed against Egypt. We come back to the story at the start of chapter 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, I actually quite like this bit, because, funny that, because for a moment, for an all too brief moment, the Israelites get it. They just get it. As we heard back in part one, they saw the Egyptian army approaching and they complained. They saw their past rushing back to claim them and they moaned and they grumbled and they were afraid. And as we'll hear over the coming weeks, these complaints don't stop after they cross the Red Sea. Instead, they see the wilderness around them. They get hungry. They get tired. They get thirsty and they complain. They grumble. They moan and they're afraid. But right now, at this point, for this moment, they don't complain. They don't moan. They don't grumble. They worship. They witness the glory of the Lord, the destruction of their enemy, and they celebrate. They celebrate because they know right here in this moment that they are free. Is that it? Is their escape over? Have they reached the promised land? Not at all. There's still a long way for them to go. But are they free? Absolutely. The hold that Egypt had over them has been broken. They have been redeemed, purchased, chosen, freed. It's the classic example of that well-worn vineyard phrase, the now and not yet of the kingdom. Is their freedom real? Yes, right now. Have they reached the promised land and the fulfillment of their destiny? 
Not quite yet. It does make me wonder, though, how often do we as Christians today find ourselves in a similar position? How often do we focus on Jesus right here and now and celebrate all that he is? How often do we instead get sidetracked by thoughts of the past behind us or the future ahead of us? We look at our past, what we've done to others, what others have done to us, and we become afraid. We get consumed with guilt and shame and fear. For whatever reason, we start to think that God can't or won't help us. Or we look to the future. Things aren't quite clear. We're not sure where we're supposed to go. Life isn't as easy as we thought it should be. And we become afraid. We start to doubt, to question, and we begin to think that maybe God can't or won't help us. The thing is, if we truly believe that God created everything, then he must also have created time itself. Revelation 21.6 tells us that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 2 Peter 3 verse 8 tells us that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Or how about Hebrews 13.8? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The point is, we can look to the past and see the sins we've committed or harm that others have caused us, or whatever it might be. Or we can look to the future and see all our worries about where we might live, or, or if we might live. But whether we're looking at the past or at the future, we're not looking at Jesus Hebrews 12 verse 2 calls us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Author and perfecter, beginning and end. You see, the more we do as the Israelites did as they came out of the Red Sea, and we fix our eyes on God and worship him for who he is right here, right now, in this present moment, then the more our entire existence is transformed by his truth. How? Because if we allow Jesus to transform our lives in the present, then this has to include a transformation of our present memories and our current understanding of the past. In the same way, focusing on Jesus at this precise moment gives him permission to transform the hopes, fears and expectations that we have now for what may or may not happen in the future. So whether we're worried about the past or the future, the solution is simply to fix our eyes on Jesus in the present. And it is that simple. But simple doesn't mean easy. Why is it not easy? Because we have an enemy, an enemy that is constantly trying to frighten God's people and remind us of the past that we're trying to escape from. An enemy that is constantly trying to frighten God's people and make us doubt the truth of God's promises for the future. But has this enemy been defeated? You bet he has. But does this mean we've reached the promised land and everything will be all milk and honey? Not quite yet. In a moment, the band's going to come back up and we'll have the opportunity to pray for one another, for anything and everything. But I just want to make one final brief point, and it's this. No Israelite crossed the Red Sea on their own. If we're going to do this, if we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, trusting him with the things we don't understand, and listening out for when he starts doing something new, then we have to do it together. We must have the grace to allow others the opportunity to help us when we're struggling, and we must have the humility to admit that we cannot get to the other side on our own. So with that in mind, let's stand. Father, thank you for your eternal presence with us. We pray that this morning that you would transform us by the renewal of our minds. Help us to focus on you as you are right here, right now, and celebrate all that you are and be transformed by your presence within us today. In Jesus' name, amen.